Hi, welcome to the Art and Science of Learning, the podcast that digs deeper in how we learn so that in today's accelerated world, we can learn better and enjoy it more. I'm your host, learning specialist, Dr. Kinga Petrovai. Every week, I discuss aspects of learning with academics, practitioners, and individuals with unique learning journeys to inform and inspire how you design learning into work and life. With many children spending more than 40 hours every week in front of screens, what is the impact of growing up immersed in this media world? Educational media is a growing industry, but there is no regulation for what can be labeled as educational. So how can parents and educators identify quality educational material for children to use? To discuss the research and practical insights on what good educational media and technology entails, I'm joined by a leading expert in children's media. Harvard Graduate School of Education Senior Lecturer Joe Blatt is Faculty Director of the Technology, Innovation, and Education Program. He has received Harvard Graduate School of Education's highest faculty honor, the Morning Star Award for Teaching Excellence. As Joe was one of my professors during my master's degree, I know firsthand what an inspiring teacher he is, and his courses are extremely popular among students every year. Joe's research and teaching focus on the effects of media content and technology on human development, learning, civic behavior, and informal learning. Joe has created television series and interactive media for many types of informal learning environments. He was the executive producer of Scientific American Frontiers and made documentaries for NOVA and close to 100 other programs for public broadcasting. He also advises major media and technology companies, including Sesame Workshop, the Chen Zuckerberg Initiative, and Google. I'm thrilled to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much, Joe, for joining me today. Well, thank you, Kinga. I'm pleased to be with you, and I hope your listeners know what a uh, terrific career you've already begun in education, so it's uh, a pleasure to get to talk with you about, about learning. Oh, thank you so much. Well, I'm really looking forward to our conversation. You've been in children's educational media for many years and for many, many different aspects of it. As a creator, advisor, and researcher, you've seen the whole spectrum of that field. So how do you think children's learning is changing as a result of the growth of information technology over these years? I I think it's almost impossible to realize how huge the change in children's learning has been because we lived through it. We Changes happen in incremental ways. But if you think back to your own schooling, and of course I'm older than you, and I think back to my school that's even further back, the idea that you could actually uh, pull, that a child can actually pull together information from all kinds of different sources and not just texts, not just uh, encyclopedias, but original sources from newspapers around the world and so on. And of course, richer media, sound and, and video and, and images, and package all that together in a, a performance of understanding of some idea. is just a stunning change. It's just no longer the case that kids learning has to be driven by or, or, or measured by their response to certain very specific questions that the teacher asks. The, child now has an amazing range of um, creativity she can bring to, to the process. Mm-hmm. And then I, I just want to say two other things and we'll see where you want to want to go. Um, one is that 
I think in the um, other balance to this is um, that there are things kids now need to learn that we maybe didn't have to pay so much attention to before. Speaking very broadly and acknowledging there's lots of limitations to this, nevertheless, you could sort of assume that a licensed teacher and a textbook from a major publisher were reasonably truthful and reliable. Now, of course, kids have access to all the sources I mentioned for better and for worse. So we have a huge obligation to make sure that children's learning from the earliest years uh, includes addressing questions like accuracy of information, uh, authenticity of, of sources, freedom from uh, bias and, and that, you know, in essentially interpretation and assessment skills, which we didn't have to worry about so much before. So that's one point I wanted to make. The other is, and this is pandemic driven for the moment, but I think it's going to not go away uh, entirely. And that is that children's learning now takes place much more in the context of the family than it has uh, in last hundred years. Uh, you know, we outsourced learning to industrial model schools uh, in order to make it more efficient, to provide childcare, to make sure that kids got the um, socially accepted training we wanted them to have. Uh, now they're mostly learning at home in most places in the world. And although we all hope school can resume in a more uh, traditional fashion eventually, I think parents are going to remain involved in what their kids are learning. They're going to be more critical audiences of what happens in schools. And kids will be, you know, I don't know about your experience, but most people say when they ask their kids what they learned in school, kids said, oh, you know, not much or it was a mm -hmm. great day or whatever. But now kids are used to talking with their parents about the substance of what they're, they're learning. In fact, the parents often the teachers, so you have to talk about the substance. Yes. So I think that's going to be a, a, a pretty profound and uh, continuing change. And that is huge because in every subject, as you said, there's not just the textbook and what the teacher says regardless of the teacher brings it in or not, there's a huge amount of different sources uh, from around the world on the internet that the children can have access to and, and the parents often introduce different educational media or games. So it's actually dealing with that topic in every subject of how do you triage and what is good information, what is not good information, and also how do you uh, streamline to not be overwhelmed by it? So it's, it's, it's an added layer of teaching, isn't it? Well, absolutely right. And, and, and actually to that point, I, I, I should add that because of the um, capability that children now have to, in effect, produce learning units, combining information from many sources along uh, audio and video, kids are now much more often in the position of being peer teachers. Right. It brings in a well-produced video combining lots of information on a given topic and the teacher shows it or has the kids show it in class. That's a major input to other kids learning. So that's an exciting uh, development too. And of course, one that I think previews for children a lot of what 21st century workplaces are going to be like where mm -hmm. teams work together and, in, and, and teach one another in effect uh, as they go through a task. So I, I, uh, those are all reasons why I'm really quite excited about what's happening with uh, educational media. There was a long period when people like me were talking about the potential, but it was all pretty abstract, and a lot of people just didn't know what we were speaking about. Now, because of uh, cheaper access to tools, and then, of course, the 
pandemic and life on Zoom, most people have tasted this and it's no longer uh, theoretical or visionary. It's what's just what's happening. Right. No, absolutely. And in that regard of this overwhelming amount of not just primary source material or different sources of educational material, there's also a huge amount of what is labeled as educational media and educational apps and toys and television shows. I mean, there's a lot. The educational industry is absolutely huge. However, this is not necessarily, we we don't exactly know what does that mean? What does the educational aspect of each individual product mean? And so what should parents and educators know uh, in terms of how to assess the educational value? Greg, I'm glad you you brought it up, particularly since um, parents are, by and large, really want to do well, I think, by their kids. Mm -hmm. And and they're they're looking for uh, resources and tools that do contribute to learning. So it's important that they uh, approach it critically. So I'm really glad that, that you're thinking about that. Um, I had a couple of general principles that I try to share with, uh, with parents. One, which I think people often find surprising a little bit, is that, for lack of a better word, um, uh, enjoyment, engagement are things that are really important to successful learning. So mm-hmm. people should not be looking for stuff that is dry and just didactic and factual. Because of course, kids don't take that in. They don't. They don't feel uh, spoken to by by that, and it ultimately doesn't uh, do any good. So, so one thing is just using your own taste and good judgment to find things that you think are actually appealing, as well as uh, uh, have good content. The second thing is that producers, I think, are making more effort to uh, document the uh, basis on which they claim that their products are educational. So. To give you an example that's close to home for me, um, I spent several years as a consultant to the Google uh, Kids and Family Group to help them uh, think about how can we identify apps that are genuinely uh, beneficial for children and young people, as opposed to just all the apps that claim to be. So with colleagues at Harvard, we developed uh, criteria for uh, dimensions like accuracy, uh, depth, um, what we called um, uh, springability. You know, does this does this encourage a kid to want to know more about uh, a given subject? And then we translated those into um, uh, standards that teachers could apply. And now teachers around the world are looking at apps, filling out assessments based on these criteria. And there's a special area in the Google Play Store where mm-hmm. your app can only go if it's been vetted by a teacher according to these criteria. So oh, Google is now able to say we actually have specific learning criteria that we apply and that teachers apply and only the apps that meet them can be in this space. So that's just one example, I think, of, of uh, producers getting more serious about how to verify their, their educational claims. That's a good thing to look for. That's a good thing to know about. I just mentioned because I know about it from the inside, but but there are uh, plenty of other examples of um, companies, producers working with um, either uh, university researchers or, or teachers or doing their own testing uh, mm-hmm. you know, with, with children to make sure that their claims are, are, are found well-founded. Um, and then the one other thing I want to mention, Kinga, about uh, uh, parents' um, search for valid educational materials is to discourage parents from thinking that the only place they should look is uh, online for uh, apps and YouTube videos and, and games. 
in fact, the real world remains a super important uh, space for kids learning. And whether it's taking kids, of course, it's hard to do right now, but sooner or later it'll become possible again to take kids to museums of different kinds, to go to historical sites, to just tour the town and, and think about how it's grown and what the different neighborhoods represent, the different groups that make up your town and where they came from. I mean, there's just a ton of lessons out there in the real world that don't require um, uh, PhDs, you know, to, to, to find Absolutely. parents can do this on their own or with the help of uh, the things that are published by community centers and, and, and so on. And even I have a soft spot in my heart for little uh, tabletop experiments, you know, just, just thinking together with your child about uh, why does this thing roll faster than this thing? Or, you know, why do these two, uh, if you pour this into this, what happens? Kind of not real nerdy science stuff, but stuff that's meant to be hey, you know, think about what your experience is showing you and think of it as a learning opportunity, not just as games. Absolutely. That's huge. And, uh, and you're talking about how to facilitate that learning in the real life and also with any kind of other educational media or game that someone might be using. And there's actually uh, research that came out to say that it's not just about the content of the of the educational media that's important, but it's also how it is being consumed and that children actually learn better if it's mediated with an adult next to them. So what are some of the tips that you would give educators and parents about the ideal ways that they should be, for example, with in terms of media and technology, how should they be creating the environment to be most suitable for the children to, to get the most out of that educational content? Well, good for you because, you know, we can talk as much as we want about uh, the resources that are out there, about parents making good choices, but unless they also involve in the child's uh, consuming in a good way, it doesn't necessarily add, add up to much. So uh, let me just uh, pivot slightly to um, sound like a psychologist for just a minute, even though I'm, I'm not, but, but it, it's just worth uh, uh, recognizing that there are kind of three well-known styles of, of parenting that have been identified. Uh, authoritarian parenting, where you tell the child what to do. I'm not what sure a good term for it, but, but sort of the easygoing uh, parenting where you, you just let the child do whatever he or she uh, feels like. And then the, the middle ground of what um, I think is well called authoritative parenting, which is to say the parent has an important role but it's as a respected authority, not as an authoritarian mm -hmm. uh, uh, giving orders or whatever. So as a, in the role of an authoritative um, parent, I think the usual practices that are, that are most effective uh, are all about talk. You know, the term in the industry that I work in about uh, children's media is, is, is usually called co-viewing, the idea that you sit down and watch a television show together or look at a YouTube video together. I think that's not terribly realistic. Um, most parents just don't have time for their own work plus doubling up on the child's work. And of course, uh, things that are appropriately um, leveled for children, especially younger children, are not necessarily very engaging for a parent. It's hard to watch uh, some of the stuff that's still good for kids, but not for uh, adults. So I don't think it's as important to be there all the time while the media is being consumed. 
What's important is to sample it so you have some idea of what's going on. And then to get your kid to tell you about it and then mm -hmm. have a discussion about it. So the child summarizes or shares highlights or, or uh, uh, just shares excitement about what she's seen. And then you tease out, well, you know, that seem real to you? Do you know, have you ever experienced that yourself? What about your friends? Do you ever talk about that together? And you just make it part of their real life and your real relationship. So I think that sort of engagement uh, is, is really the, the role I see for, for. And teasing out, I think, is such a, an important word because so often children give one word answers and to try to ask questions that can't be answered in a one word answer and bringing that out is, is very, very important. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, I think sampling really is, is important. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that you can succeed at the teasing if you've never bothered to look. Now, you have to make some time available. But a lot of, um, of media for kids, really of, um, of, of young kids, but also, say, kids in, in what we call middle school in the U.S. and, and uh, in high school, if you just take an occasional look at a, a, an example, you can pretty much generalize. You don't yes. have to see every episode of Coco Melon to know what it's like. You know, you right. just need to know what it's like. Yeah, that's a very good tip to bring it into the reality because, as you said, there's so many different demands that are in everyone's life that it's really, really hard to be creating the ideal, the ideal situation. And of course, bringing bringing the media into the real world, into the discussions and the creation and doing something with it, as you said, going out into the into nature as much as possible as well. That's fantastic. So in terms of uh, design, I mean, there's a lot of very, very good design that I think some people are not aware of, and you're very much involved in uh, with a lot of different organizations, Sesame Street being one of them, where they have a very close relationship with Harvard Graduate School of Education, and, uh, and everything is based on educational values. And there's a lot of great resources like that, that actually parents may not even know about and uh, and not realize the, the the background and the content of it that makes it good but in terms of designers what would you tell designers who who are trying to do something that's educational uh, what should they have in mind when they're looking at education media for children as you said it's my great privilege to um, do a lot of work with uh, Sesame Workshop the creators of, of Sesame Street and a lot of other programs so my views on this are uh, pretty deeply influenced by that experience but I think that's appropriate because Sesame is the, also the most thoroughly researched set of programs mm -hmm. in the history of education with thousands, literally thousands of studies. And of course, also um, it's now international and the studies have been done in other countries as well. So I think the lessons from Sesame Street, if you will, are, are pretty profound. And although they uh, devote a lot of resources to this, so they're not necessarily... Um, you don't have to be as big or as famous as Sesame Street to apply the ideas. Serious designers, I think, can do all of what I'm about to, to share, which are really three, just three points. One is knowing in some depth about your audience. And uh, for kids and young people, that audience has to be fairly precisely identified. You know, designers or producers, companies would love to say, this is great for ages three to 12. But, and that's, you often see that kind of thing on, on packaging. But the fact is that the learning needs and, and uh, abilities of a three-year-old are totally different from a 12-year-old. Absolutely. Um, not to mention their cultural interests and so on. So 
you really have to be uh, more honest about the age range you can serve. And then having identified that age range, you really have to have some sense of what's developmentally appropriate. Colors and numbers and letters for three and four-year-olds are one thing. Uh, music and food and interpersonal relations for 12-year-olds. So, you know, it's really, really different uh, interests and different, um, as I say, developmentally appropriate goals. The, the, the second thing I think that's, that's really important is for, for um, designers is humility. That is to say, no matter how good your ideas are, are seen to you, they may not be right. And so it's essential to test your designs with children or young people in your target audience mm-hmm. before you release them to the public at large. And it's a wonderful process. It's not expensive, but it's incredibly informative. And everybody who's done it never goes back, never abandons that technique. But not enough people do it yet. So it's it's, that idea of testing in development or so-called formative testing is just essential for people. And you realize that even with adults, but especially with children, uh, that they end up using it or or reacting to things that you never actually thought about. You never realized that that was an aspect that was important or it can be used that way or, or thought about in a certain way. Yeah, that, that, that's a really uh, shrewd observation because um, sometimes you can discover a strength in what you've created you didn't even know about and exactly. pull that up as a major feature of, of the product. But as often or maybe more often, you find that some of the things that you put in to engage kids to sort of sweeten the experience actually get in the way of the, of the learning. So you have to go mm-hmm. back and make sure that those things are mutually enforcing rather than one crowding out uh, the other. And then the third thing I was going to mention, Kinga, in terms of uh, what designers need to think about is the diversity of the children they want to speak to. I think until very recently, most producers were creating materials and even if they did the testing, but more often if they're just imagining their audience, they're thinking about white middle-class kids as their, as their audience. And those things tend not to necessarily work as well with kids of color, kids from different backgrounds, kids with different social or income class. Mm-hmm. So I think having in mind uh, personae, uh, imaginary kids of different colors and different situations as you start the design and then testing with a, an inclusive uh, range of kids is, is the third pillar of, of really good, uh, good design. Absolutely. That is huge. Once again, discovering so many aspects of their life and what they're bringing to it that you would have never thought about or occurred to you. So mm-hmm. that's, uh, that's really important. And in terms of apps and, and technologies, you are working on a literacy app for children at this time and working on the research and the development of that. Could you please tell me more about what that project is that you're working on? Oh, well, yeah, thank you for asking. I'm, I'm actually very excited about it. And I'll just uh, give away the end of the story first, which is um, we're pretty excited about what we're learning in this process. And we hope to make these apps actually available to people um, possibly as soon as the uh, first of uh, next year. So what uh, it's hard to be concise about something that's been such a big part of my life for about two years now, but as briefly as I can, as I can say it, these are actually what we would call pre-literacy apps in the sense they're really aimed at three-year-olds who are not yet typically reading, mm-hmm. but they're to encourage the behaviors that research shows are great foundations for literacy. 
And they're also aimed not just at the three-year-old, but at the parent. They're entirely designed to be used parent and child together. You know, there's mm -hmm. a lot of handoff of the phone from parent to child to keep the child busy while work is going on, whatever. These can't be used that way. They really have to be used as a, as a dyad. So what they consist of is uh, various kinds of games, role plays, uh, opportunities to sing and, and, and uh, to act out, but all of them designed to do a couple of things, to uh, increase the uh, child's uh, willingness to keep a conversation going, to uh, enhance the sort of back and forth of conversation between parent and child. So you mentioned earlier being stuck with one word answers, and these apps are designed to really get beyond that, to genuine conversation, and conversation that can go as many as half a dozen or more turns back and forth. So this is to encourage conversation abilities. Yeah, because again, so the ability, for instance, to sustain a conversation is one of these findings from research that is a direct foundation for uh, literacy in the next stage of, of mm -hmm. development. Another one that's maybe even more uh, obvious, if you think about it, is the apps encourage conversation about people and situations and activities that are not physically present at that moment. So you talk about things that happened yesterday or last summer, and you talk about plans that you have for tomorrow and further into the future. Mm -hmm. So that that conversation that's somewhat more abstract in the sense of not being about things that are right in front of the kid, uh, that also strengthens uh, uh, pre-literacy. And then, of course, uh, we chose the games and, and, um, and settings to make appropriate kinds of uh, vocabulary strides uh, as well, again, to prepare for, for reading. So I, I just want to say one other thing. I promise not to keep going on about this uh, too long, but, uh, well, two other things to be uh, fair. One, one is that there are actually three different apps, and the reason they're all getting at the same goal of in, uh, building preparation for literacy, all based on research. But three, why three different ones? Because of what I said earlier, kids and families are different. And what mm. works well for one parent-child dyad, a different app would work better for a different dyad. So we want to have plenty of variety for families to find. And what are those differences? Would fit better with some families and not with sure. others? Um, the, uh, see, the easiest way I can um, describe it is that some of the apps are fairly clearly formatted. They tell you kind of what to do next, what to mm -hmm. say next, what question to ask. So if you're a parent who finds yourself, finds it stressful to try to keep a conversation going, there's lots of help for you. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you're a natural talker and, and you find it fairly easy to keep a conversation with your kid going, a different app might, might suit you better. That, that's mm -hmm. one example. Um, and then there are also um, just different kind of activities like some apps are, some of the apps are focused more on what happens on screen. Some are more focused on bringing behaviors out into the real world. So, so depending on what stage your kid is at and what you're comfortable with, it might be different. So I would, I would imagine that all families, I hope that all families would download all three. They're free after all, but experiment to find out what works. And possibly after one, another would be useful. Yeah, that's right. I would hope that that's right. And then the last thing I want to say is uh, having uh, uh, emphasized throughout our conversation uh, the importance of research and testing, I do want to make clear that these apps have been extensively tested in development, first with mm -hmm. just small uh, interactions with a small number of children, like in a uh, daycare center. And then mm -hmm. when they were more fully built, we've taken them out to use, to, we've given them to families in 80 homes 
to uh, play with for a period of three to six weeks. And we periodically tuned in to see what was happening and whether the apps were actually used, did people like them, and did kids seem to be growing in terms of the behaviors, kids and parents actually, growing right. in terms of the behaviors we were trying to uh, encourage. Were there some unexpected or surprising outcomes of those, of those in the field testing? Sure. Something that um, we didn't expect? You bet. Let's see if I, um, two that, that come to my mind immediately. Uh, one is not so much a finding, but a process, which was we were gearing up. Uh, we had the second set of apps just about ready for testing. We're starting to, we actually put out a request for um, a group to work with to help us find the families to test with. And then the pandemic hit. And of course, we cannot send graduate students out to people's homes to test the apps mm-hmm. under current circumstances. So I had to really think, how can we solve this problem? And I realized I I could hire an entertainment research company, the kind of folks who do the ratings to see whether you like a show or not. And we hired them and we were able to get into people's homes by Zoom, by video. And Mm -hmm. uh, that way I was able actually to watch kids and and their parents using the app, not just hear about it from research assistants. So that for me was actually uh, what we call a silver lining of the, uh, of the uh, situation. Um, so that was, that was a, a, a good development. Perhaps a, a not so good development is that the original run last summer of three apps that we had uh, thought were pretty good that we wanted to test, two of them uh, elicited a lot of um, enjoyment and, and, and uh, positive feedback from the families. And one was just a flop and you could just tell it was a flop within the first week or two by looking at the difference in usage data. Mm-hmm. The two were used every day. One was used once or twice and then ignored. Yeah. And in retrospect, it's, it's because it was, it was too hard. It, uh, it was too, I mean, not uh, intellectually, it was too um, uh, complicated to, to use. We tried too hard to build in too many features and the uh, suggestions and it just was kind of baffling to most people. So. Sometimes you just have to say, you know what, that one didn't work and, and let it go. That's very interesting. It's a good thing to realize because when you're in it and you're the designer and you're researching it and then you, you actually sometimes can lose sight of the fact that it might be a little bit over cumbersome to actually right. use. Which is why from the beginning we developed and, and, and knew we were going to develop five apps uh, because we knew you can't get it all you can't always get it right and because we knew that different things would work for different people so the apps is as we're hoping to release them to the public for general use there'll only be three uh one that as i mentioned failed and one that we realized was better just worked into one of the other one kind of a fusion uh one that sounds incredible and also bringing together so many different strands of research from from what i'm hearing i mean one is as you said, the early literacy, building early literacy in children so that when they get to the point of learning to read, they're able to to learn a lot better, but also helping parents in how they talk to their children. I mean, all the literature that says that how much you talk to a child and how much they're exposed to, to a variety of language before they come to school is a huge predictor of their abilities in school. Um, but asking those types of open-ended questions and helping parents to ask those types of questions, which helps literacy and also helps critical thinking in children later on when, when you don't ask a yes or no kind of questions. So that's a lot of amazing 
research and uh, education that is packed into that app. And are people able to access it at this point? Are we able to uh, not have a yet, link? We're still, uh, but first of all, thank you for your nice uh, comments. And I hope you feel uh, the same way when you do get a chance to, uh, to play with them, which I hope won't be long. Among the things we learned from doing this kind of uh, research that I described is ways that we can improve even the ones that we feel tested very successfully. So right now we're engaged in, uh, in revisions. And then there is, of course, a um, period during which uh, the major app stores have to review it and make sure they're happy with it. But as I say, I, I, I am optimistic that we might uh, be able to have them uh, available as soon as the 1st of January. Great. Something to keep in mind. And they will on. be free. Important note. That's really great. Oh, well, I look forward to testing it out and trying it. That sounds really interesting. And in terms of looking forward from your career and all the different things you've done and also the way that technology has become so central during this pandemic and uh, expedited a lot of the implementations of tech, what possible aspects do you think would be a wonderful outcome in the future? Great question. I'm optimistic that uh, whenever COVID-19 is a distant memory, that, that children's learning will never be entirely going back to what it was before. I think that technology, which was often uh, kind of an uncomfortable, uh, controversial, uh, not necessarily successful part of uh, schooling, will now be a permanent part of kids' learning for, in a couple of important ways. One is children of all ages will have more agency, more freedom to choose among a variety of resources which ones work best for them. Uh, it's just impossible for a teacher or even a loving parent to know for sure which is the best match of child and, and resource. But now kids can look for themselves to it. The thing is that I think it'll become a sort of permanent feature of, of children's learning that there'll be a major peer-to-peer uh, -peer component. Having discovered a good resource or made sense of something that was puzzling, kids are now gonna share even more or not often allowed, there's not a lot of time or place in school to do that kind of sharing. You know, you're supposed to look in front of the room, not exactly. necessarily to one another. But online, you just talk to one another in singles and in, in groups, and kids do that all, all the time. Yeah. And then I, I think um, a, a third change is that for as long as I can remember, we've talked about the, um, I mean, educators have talked about the importance of uh, interdisciplinary approaches. That is that the real interesting topics in the world and, and the real problems, the real challenges the world face, faces can only be resolved by combining expertises from a bunch of fields. But school still doesn't do that. School still has math and then it's time for reading and then it's time for geography. And in most schools, those are sharply siloed learning experiences. But I think technology, the, re right. the ability to sort of look at the real world and to look at multiple sources and so on, is going to make it much more practical, feasible for educators to make learning experiences that are genuinely interdisciplinary. And I think that's going to be great for kids and, and frankly, great for the future of the, of the planet. That's fantastic. Yes. And let's hope that people pay attention to that and, and push it in that direction because there's a lot of really great opportunities to come out of using technologies in the in the right way and to share the right resources. 
Well, before we end, I just wanted to ask you for a recommendation, either a book or article, something that inspires you and you think would be interesting for others on this topic. Let me suggest actually two, if I can get away with uh, that. First of all, I, I really strongly recommend that parents of kids of all ages uh, become familiar with Common Sense Media, the uh, organization, that, and that's also mm -hmm. the name of their website, commonsensemedia.org, all one word, mm -hmm. which is just, I think, a wonderful resource for parents. It includes uh, reviews of both entertainment and educational uh, products of all sorts. It's got a strong editorial staff who write thoughtfully about the products they're reviewing, but it also has a major uh, parent sharing component where parents provide their reviews quite specifically targeted to the age of their, of their children. Uh, it's the sort of thing that existed in bits and pieces in scattered ways, word of mouth largely uh, before, but Common Sense Media uh, has managed to pull it together in a systematic, continuing way, and I, I really respect what they've done. So that, that's one. The other um, source I, I would point to is a, a book called Tap, Click, Read, written by um, Michael Levine. And I think it's, I'm pretty sure it's a paperback now because it's about two years old. Because it's two years old, uh, some of the apps that are reviewed in it are probably disappeared. And there's good new material that's, that's not uh, in the book. But that's not why I recommend it. I recommend it because the first 50 pages which are a description of exactly some things we've talked about, about how parents should think about being mediators between their children and the wild west of educational technology products. And it's just a very well-written, very parent-oriented guide to, to how to think about these things. So thank you very much. That is really fantastic. And Thank you very, very much for, for coming and making time to, uh, to talk to me today. As always, it, I always learn so much from our conversations and always come away very inspired. So I really appreciate it. And uh, thank you very much. Well, thank you, Kinga. Thank you for having me. Thank you for um, including me in your, I think, really terrific roster of, of podcast uh, contributors. I'm, I'm very flattered to be a part of it. And I always like talking with you about educational media. We've had a chance to do that in various settings and let's continue yes. to do that. So thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you.